this let's read the scripture first and then we'll proceed luke 7 36 to 50 i have a number of long scriptures today but i've decided i will read just one and then i'll summarize the others luke 7 36 to 50 if somebody can open it for us minister christy can read it out loud for us luke 7 36 to 50 Luke 7, 36 to 50. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to verse 50. I read. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping, And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. But this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Hallelujah. Amen. Very interesting story. We are in the month of February. Yesterday I went to a pharmacy shop. And as I was... As I was driving the car to the yard, I saw that it was full of Valentine. And I said, when did pharmacy shops do start advertising Valentine? What has Valentine got to do with the drugs that we buy? Hallelujah. Amen. But, that is, <laughs> but that is the world we are in. It tells us that February is a month of love. So no matter what you are selling, no matter what you are doing, you have to tweak it a bit and add a bit of love to it so that it will sell. Hallelujah. So they were selling, I don't know what they were selling, but they had. Maybe you know what they were selling. (laughs) But they had love, you know, ribbons and all those things around the pharmacy shop. And so I've been thinking about it. And this book written by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages, came to mind. The Five Languages, in it, Gary Chapman outlines. Five ways that he believes that, 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 in fact, what he, the import of that book is that just as it is important for you to have oil in the engine of an automobile to ensure the effective running of the automobile, so is it very important that our love tanks are full to maintain the love of every relationship. So, in other words, it means that every relationship, be it a marital relationship, be it a family relationship, a father-child, whatever it is, there are love tanks. And you need to be able to identify the love language of the other person. If it's in marriage, it's your spouse. If it's a family, it's a child. To be able to fill that love tank, that love tank of the person. And thereby have the person respond to you appropriately. And he has done several research in that category. Particularly several have to do with marriage couples. 
several even to do with parents and their children, whereas why some children even actually withdraw and enter into, you know, vagabonds and enter into bad company of friends because they don't feel love in the home. And have identified that there are five ways that we can fill the various love tanks of our spouses. And he outlines those five ways as first and foremost acts of service. Then he says words of affirmation. Some people, no matter what you give to them, you may give them gifts, gifts, gifts. If you do not help them out in the home, you will never speak or satisfy their love language. If the love language of the person is acts of service, you can buy the most expensive whatever. You may never feel that you are satisfying the person. And the person will never really be, full, be, be, be happy with you per se. Because his love, or her love language is acts of service. And we have words of affirmation. Some people love to hear encouraging words, different ways. And he talks also about gifts. Some people, no matter what you do, if you don't, if you don't give out to them, you're not generous to them, you will never be able to bring out the best in them. Some others, it's quality time. You have to have very good quality time. You can buy them the most expensive things. You know, you can get a house, set a servant, do all the work in the house for the person. But if you don't have quality time to spend with the person, you will still not fill the laughter of the person. With some others, it's also physical touch. You can do everything. But if you don't have that physical touch aspect in the relationship, you know, it will not work. And so Gary Chapman explains that oftentimes marriages and relationships suffer because the love tanks of the spouses is empty. What you need your spouse to do to really touch you, the soft spots in your heart, you need a spouse to touch, he or she never touches it. So oftentimes people withdraw in relationships, people use harsh words in relationships, People see, are seen to be critical, not because they, are, they just seem to be critical or they just want to be critical, but because they feel empty. Their love tank is empty. And why is it empty? You are not actually doing the things that they need you to do to make them happy. So that is what Gary Chapman talks about. And cut across in every sphere of relationship. It would be good to take that book and then read it. But in this month... In this year of cleaving unto the Lord, particularly in this month of cleaving, cleaving, and oneness with God, I began to wonder how this is relevant to us. And I realized that scripture says it clearly in Ephesians 5.31. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. I speak concerning Christ and the church. So living, cleaving, and oneness with God hasn't only got to do with marital relationship. The marital relationship is a prototype of what God expects us to do with him. Of the kind of relationship that God expects us to have with him as his children. And so I believe that it is important for us to be able to also, as individuals, as children of God, know how to cleave to our God. If this scripture of our cleaving is actually concerning Christ and the church, it means it concerns Christ and you and concerns Christ and me. So I need to know how I can cleave effectively to the Lord. And you need to know also how you can cleave effectively to the Lord. And so to be able to cleave effectively to the Lord, I need to be able to know what, it, what is it that touches the heart of God. What is God's love language? What is it that I speak, that what I do, it will touch his heart, his, his soft spot. What will make his love tongue filled for me? This morning, we are talking about one of the mysteries of unwrap. Maybe they, I have two topics. Maybe you choose which one of what wants. One is God's love language. And the other is unraveling the secret of fervent love. Either of them. When I finish preaching, 
Whichever one you think is more appropriate, take it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So, a lot of us claim to love God. And in fact, sincerely, we love God. And so we try to express our love to God in various ways. Sometimes by being very active in church, you know, doing a lot of things in the church, doing what you think is best. Some people think that, you know, the more time they spend praying in tongues, you know, you know, it shows their love for God. Some people think that different ways, you know, they have, can do different things and that's the way they can show their love to God. But I remember the story, as I was praying this message, I remember a story of a couple Many years ago, I had this couple. The man was a very hardworking man who wanted to make ends meet in his family and who wanted to make his family very self-sufficient and very happy. And so he spent a lot of time working and working and would buy everything in the home to make the home very cozy and sophisticated. And he was hardly in the house. And one day, he bought the latest model of a car. Very expensive. He didn't even drive that car himself. And he brought the keys and brought it to his wife. And he was happy that he had been able to buy something like this for his wife. And he gave it to his wife. He was happy. And the woman took the keys and threw it away in his presence. And he was shocked. And he said, ah. He said, this is not what I want. When I married you, I didn't marry you to be able to acquire possessions. I married a human being. I wanted somebody I can share my life with. I wanted somebody I can talk to. My deepest fears with the, share my deepest fears with the person. Pray with, have the person hold my hand. If you don't have anything to eat, just hold my hand and let's pray. And just support me. And all you do is just buy and buy. I did not marry you for wealth. I married you because of the person you are. And I wanted to have time with you. This woman's love language was quality time. And the man had missed it completely. 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 He was just zeroing in on gifts and gifts and gifts. And he had missed it completely. So nothing, he, until that realization dawned on him, then he realized that he had spent a greater part of his life after marriage doing the wrong things. And he had to redirect his energies towards doing the right things. That's how it is with some of us. We try to love God, and we try to love God in the way that we think best, in our way, without finding out what it is that touches the heart of God, the buttons of God that when we press, we are able to get certain reactions from him. And this morning, we want to look at one of such very, very important buttons. And there are two stories in the Bible that I also want to narrate because of time. I can't read all those stories. The first story, you can read it when you get back home. It's in Acts chapter 10. It's a story of Cornelius. Bible tells us, I'll just read the introduction because I like the way the Bible puts that introduction in Acts chapter 10. It says that there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. A devout man, and one who feared God with all his household. That is one. One who feared God. He said a devout man. One. He feared God with all his household. Two. Who gave alms generously to the people. Three. And prayed to God always. And he continues. So this is the man you're talking about. Cornelius. With all these attributes. And he says that. The Bible says that at the ninth hour of the day. He saw clearly in the vision. Of God, sorry, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and say to him, and they continued, this man was a very devout man, he was praying regularly, and one day as he was praying, an angel of the Lord came down to him, and he said to him, Cornelius, your prayers and your almsgiving have come to God as a memorial, that's verse 4, your prayers and your almsgiving have come to God as memorial. And he said, now go to Joppa. There is a man there called Simon. Go and ask him to come. When he comes, he'll show you what to do. Around the same time that this man was having a vision, Peter was also there reclining in his home. He was trying to have a nap. And as he was trying to have a nap, 
suddenly he had a vision. And the vision, there was a sheet that came down to him. And he had all the strange animals that the Israelites were not supposed to eat coming down to him. And the voice from heaven said, Arise, take, kill, and eat. Peter said, No. I have never eaten any of these things. And we're not even supposed to eat them. This vision happened three times. And so he realized that, and then I find the voice that what I have cleansed, no, let no man call unclean. So Peter was pondering what this vision could mean. What is this thing that God would want him to, to do? That in his mind's eye, or that traditionally speaking, or that is unacceptable amongst them as Jews, that God would want him to do. As he was thinking about it, he had a knock on the door. These were the messengers from Cornelius. They came to him and said, well, our master Cornelius sent us to you. He sent us to you that this and this and this. So Peter got up and he went. He went with them. And when he got there, Cornelius narrated to him everything that had happened. I was praying at this time. And then suddenly an angel of the Lord came to me. And said that I should go to Joppa, send for Peter, and Peter will come and show me what to do. And then Peter said, of the truth, I know that God is no respecter of persons. Because then Peter understood the vision that the Lord had given to me. I mean, the vision was the fact that the, the food that was on the table, the unacceptable food, represented the Gentiles. Because Cornelius was a Gentile. He was not of a Jew. And at that time, they believed that salvation message of Christ was only to be told to the Jews. So only the Jews were the recipients of the gospel of salvation. They would preach to nobody except Jews. So, but for this vision, Peter would not have shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with with Cornelius, who was a Gentile. But when God himself spoke to him that what I have cleansed, let no man call unclean, Peter no more had anything to do but to share the gospel of Christ. And the beautiful thing, as he was sharing the gospel with them, suddenly the Holy Ghost came upon Cornelius and his entire household, just as the Holy Ghost came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And he was shocked because oftentimes when they preach the gospel, they will preach the gospel to the people, to the Jews. Then they baptize them in water. And then after they have baptized them in water, after a while, then they will receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But here is a centurion who is a Gentile. Now, I'm not even supposed to share the gospel with Gentiles. I'm sharing with him. And even before I finish sharing the gospel, the Holy Ghost baptism comes down on them strongly. He said, hey, as for this, I haven't seen them before. If the Holy Ghost himself has come on you, then what can I do to withhold you from baptizing in water? As soon as, after the Holy Ghost came on them, he went with them to the water and baptized them. This is the first, one of the first recipients and Gentile recipients of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a very, very beautiful story. This man was a devout man. And Bibles, I like the way Bible describes him. He said he was a devout man with his whole household. So he wasn't devout alone. Some of us, we worship God alone. We don't worship God with our household. Our house helps are not part of the family of God. So we worship God, we have a prayer altar, and we have it with our spouses alone or with our children alone. We don't add anybody in our household to it. But this man, he said he worshiped God with his entire household. And then it said again that he gave alms generously to people he gave alms generously to people and he prayed to God always and when the angel came he said what your prayers have been heard remember what we said the law of asking oh. your prayers have been heard but he didn't end there he said that and your alms giving has come as a memorial unto the Lord two things that provoked God to send his angel to Cornelius the prayer, he kept praying, and that is a law. If you pray, he will hear you. So he came down in response to his prayer. And then secondly, he said, your almsgiving has come as a memorial to the Lord. Your almsgiving has come as a memorial to the Lord. Then this man, this gentleman, 
as a result of these things, finally he became a recipient and the first recipient of the gospel of grace. Now I want to go also to the Old Testament. Another character. Very unlikely character. This person was not even a devout person like Cornelius. And yesterday I spoke about this person. This person was a Samway woman. She was a prostitute. Hallelujah. Oh, she was a well-known prostitute in the land of Jericho. I don't know why she was well-known, but she was well-known. Oh, yes. She was well-known. And she was positioned very well at the city's gates. So you can't enter Jericho without getting to know Rahab. Somehow, if you want a good prostitute, you have to go to Rahab. Her position alone was... So Rahab was a prostitute. She was from Jericho. She was also not a Jew. She was from Jericho. Then some one day, spies, that's in Joshua chapter 2. One day, there were spies from Israel who came to spy out Jericho. Because God had told the people of Israel that he was going to give Jericho to them as their possession. So Joshua sent spies to go and spy out the land and come back and give him a feedback. So these spies entered Jericho. And when they entered Jericho, they found no other place to go and the house of Rahab. So Rahab received them, fed them, and then hit them. Not long after the king sent spies to Rahab, them sent messengers to Rahab and said, Rahab, we have, I have heard that you are hosting the people from Israel. These are people who have come to spy out our land. They have come to spy out our land because they want to take possession of the land of Jericho. And so as a king of Israel, he was concerned. If you have, you're a king and somebody wants to take possession of it, you will not let those people go. So he wanted Rahab to give the spies. But Rahab told the messengers that, well, yes, um, spy, the, the Israelites, two men came here earlier on. I don't know. I didn't know that they were from Israel. They just came to my house. I received them. But they left the house before the gates of the city were closed. And they left. As to where they went, I don't know. But they must have gone to the mountains. So you can pursue them and go to the mountains and see if you can find them. For I'm sure they haven't gone too far. So he said that to the king's messengers and they left. He looked, they looked around the house. They couldn't find the spies. And they left and pursued them. Meanwhile, she had hidden those two men up in the flax of the roof. And after the men had gone, she went to these spies and said to them, Yes, we all know that the Lord is going to give Jericho to you. And this woman recounted to the spies all the miracles that God had done for Israel. She wasn't an Israelite, but she had heard of the miracles God had done for them. She recounted to the spies one by one what God had done for the Israelites and said that, I believe, as for me, I believe without a shadow of doubt that God is going to give this city to you. And I'm asking you that when God gives this city to you, remember me and my house. And so they said to him that, said to her that, okay, you have hosted us and you have concealed our presence in your home from the king. We certainly will do this for you on one condition. And the condition is that make sure that all your family and those you want saved are in this house with you. And by the time that we come, by the time that the Lord gives the city to us, you must have hung a scarlet rope on the window of this house. Any individual who finds himself in this house where the scarlet rope is hung will be saved. But if anybody is outside this home, the person will not be saved. And if the scarlet is not on this the window of this house, nobody in this home will be saved. And Bible said, Rahab said, I have heard you. And Bible said that the moment she le- the, the spies left the house, the moment she left the house, she took the scarlet and she hung it on a window. And I was looking at these two characters of Rahab and Cornelius. And I saw a lot of similarities in these two characters. Two, very, a, a lot of similarities in these two characters. 
Here was Rahab, she was a Gentile. But she had so much faith in the God of Israel that she actually recounted the miracles that God had done to God's own people. As if they did not know. She spoke forth the word. She did not just know it and keep it, but she spoke it forth. And she narrated everything to them. Secondly, Bible tells us that Cornelius liked to give alms. Who would have thought that a prostitute, a prostitute, you're just in to make out, make money. But this woman, she realized that these people are strangers. These people were not her own kinsmen. These people are strangers. But because of the faith she had in the God of Israel, the faith she had in the God of Israel compelled her to take in those spies and compelled her to put her own life at risk. Because by lying to the king, she was putting her life on the line. You are a part of Jericho. And you have decided to hide spies. You're a traitor. Outright. And so you're not fit to live. If they had found that Rahab was lying to the king, she would have died. So she put her life on the line for the spies. She was hostile to them. She gave them the food that she, they, they wanted to eat, the, a place to lie, you know, and she hid them. And then she showed them the rules to take. So, and she misdirected their, their enemies to make sure that they by all means miss him. So the, that Rahab and Cornelius, they have one main thing in common. They are expressing of love to God and one another. Cornelius loved God so much. He was always praying to God. And Bible says, you know, the night hour of prayer, there were particular times of prayer that God had asked his children to pray to him. And every every devout Jew stuck to those times of prayer. The ninth hour was one of the times of prayer. And so he was praying at the right time, at the ninth hour. And he was praying and then the Lord visited him. So this man was devout and this man loved the Lord with all his heart. And not just loved the Lord with all his heart. He loved the Lord and he loved strangers. He was giving alms to people. You know, in Jewish history, they said that one of the sacred things that they were, God expected them to do was to be hospitable to strangers. Hospitality to people, your kinsmen, wasn't a big deal. You could be hospitable with people you know, but that wasn't a big deal. But if you were hospitable to strangers, that was seen as a godly act. That is why when Abraham, and some people argue that that is why Abraham's first act of faith was his ability to welcome the strangers who came to his house. By welcoming those strangers, welcoming the angels of God, I did not know. And that was the first act of faith qualified him for the, to be the father of faith. By actually receiving strangers into his home and actually being hostile to them. If you read that account, you know that Abraham went out of his way. These were people who didn't know them, but he brought them to the house, he fed them, he made them very welcome, only for it to turn out that these people were actually angels that God has sent to him. So the question is what if he hadn't welcomed those strangers? These people were angels that God has sent to them, but they came in the form of strangers and in my own life i was sharing with a woman yesterday that i have missed some sad some i've sadly missed some great angelic encounters and i was saying that it's in my book when i was working when i started university when i finished university i, was, I started working i worked with vra i was in akosombo i was living in akosombo in the mess area and i was the apartment i was in it was cushioned in between two other families and then one day I was in my hall, nice cozy hall with air conditioning, curtains drawn, everything. And I was there and I think I saw, I, was peeping, I heard a lot of noise, laughing chatter. So I peeped my, through my curtain and I saw the, fam- the, the family on the other side. They were sitting outside on the porch, talking, ha- ha- laughing heartily. So I was wondering what had come over them because they were often very busy people. But I was there and then I saw that somebody was coming up my door. And the man came to knock. I didn't know the person. I said, ah, what is this man knocking on my door for? There are people standing, sitting there. You can see them. If you need something, why don't you go and ask them? But 
Where in my house, unless I could see him. But if you are outside, you wouldn't tell if somebody was in the house or not. So I could see that man, and there's no way the man could see that somebody was in the house. So he knocked and he knocked. I didn't open the door. A single lady, I didn't mind him. And he, he, whatever it is, there are people there, go and ask them, why come to, why knock your man door? So I didn't mind him. And he knocked and he knocked. And I expected him to go down there. But I didn't go there. And that's what got me worried. So I decided to follow, just peep in the curtain and see where this man will go. He didn't go to that house there. He bypassed the other house there. And he went down the hill. Down the hill to another house down there. And that house to outside that house, you couldn't tell if there were people in the house. It was like my place. The whole compound was empty. You know, so you wouldn't tell if the people in the house or not, but he went to knock on the door. And I was wondering that, ah. at that time I was, very, I was very spiritual, more spiritual than now. Oh, I used to pray and my spiritual senses were sharp. But this one, fear, oh, I don't know what it is. So as the man went, I was asking that, hey, who is this man? And the Holy Spirit just whispered to him. I was just saying, could it be that, I was asking that, why is this man bypassing? He said, could it be that he's knocking on the house of believers? And then I realized that, yes, that house, they were unbelievers. That house, too, they were unbelievers. But this is my house. I was like a believer. And the one down there, too, they were believers. I knew that because any time I spend my weekend in Kosovo, I would join them to church. So I knew that they were strong believers. And then it just dawned on me strongly that I had missed an angelic visitation. I watched out to see the mango. I didn't see where he passed. I didn't see where he passed. And I knew, and I wept so. I said, Lord, forgive me. Whether it is foolishness, or it is fear, or it is selfishness, I don't know. But whatever it is, forgive me. Because I have missed an angelic visitation. And I didn't learn from that. I didn't learn from that. Many years down the line, God sent another angel to me. Somewhere. And the pressures of life. I was late for work. I had to drop my kids in school. Pressure. I felt a strong inkling in my spirit. Stop and attend to this person. Stop. Aish. Pressure. I just drove and went. But when I was coming back, I said, no. If I don't look for this woman, I looked all around for the place. I drove around. I couldn't find the person again. I said, hey, you know. And we are like that. But Rahab was smarter than most of us are. Rahab and Cornelius, they were smarter than most of us are. And oftentimes, clap to the Lord if you want to. Oftentimes, God's bring, God brings angels away. But they do not come as angels. And so we do not see them. We do not see them and oftentimes we do not welcome them. But if you and I were to welcome some strangers away, would speak a blessing over our lives. And let me just show one, one day, Reverend Dati, and it's in his book, I'm sharing because it's in his book. In his book that I edited for him, his first book, Fighting Discouragement. He says one day, he was in Canada also, and then he was there, and then after church, or just before, yeah, just after church, immediately after church, he was there, and they said, somebody wants to look for you. Somebody's looking for you. An elderly man, he didn't know the man from anywhere. He, the man, he came, and the man called him. He said, you went to his office. And the man said, I can't remember the, the, the discord, but some of it is all is that. He said, where is your wife, Regina? And he sent for them to go and call his wife. But she was not coming because they had closed churches. She was interacting with the church members. And he said, my time is short. Kneel down. I have come to bless you. And this man blessed him. And blessed him. And blessed him. And then after he left, when his wife came, the man had gone. And that was the turning point of his ministry. That was a turning point of his ministry. And this was an angelic visit. The man was an elderly man, not well too well dressed. He would have said, that, ah, who is this man? What does he want in my life? Come to see me, the bishop. No, 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 no. Protocol here and there. But this man was an angel sent to bless him. And this man pronounced blessings upon blessings upon him. When he finished, he left. When the wife came, they couldn't find, they traced the man, they couldn't find the man. And that was the turning. He records it in his book, Fighting Discouragement. That was the turning point in his ministry. 
So oftentimes, God sends to us angels, but they come in diverse forms that we cannot reckon. And we ought to give and give and give until we cannot give again. Because when you sow in the morning, you can sow in the afternoon, you can sow in the evening. You don't know which one will yield a blessing for you. Cornelius just gave alms. He just gave alms. He just gave alms. But he did not know that this arm was being recorded in heaven. Bible says your prayers and your alms giving have come to me as a memorial. Rahab was just receiving strangers that nobody would welcome. Receiving them and giving them a place to eat and a place to sleep. But somehow, this woman, through her act, by that act of receiving strangers, by that act of feeding them, by that act of recounting to them the miracles God had done, she was positioning herself to receive inexplicable grace from God. So this woman who was hitherto a Gentile, this woman who was hitherto a prostitute, and as far as I'm concerned, Bible tells us that no prostitute will inherit the kingdom of God. It is there in the Bible. It said no prostitute will inherit, no fornicator. It said no fornicator. So prostitute is a even worse form of fornicator. No fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God. That is what scripture says. And for this woman, not only to be reckoned, you know, the next time we read of Rahab in Asa Joshua, the next time we read of her is in Matthew chapter 1, where they are recounting the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And they are mostly the names of men. And they have only five names of women, women there. And Rahab is one of those five. The next time we see Rahab mentioned, she jumps from Matthew to Hebrews 11. Where you are, they are mentioning men of faith, people of faith. And there are only two women mentioned there. One is Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And if Sarah's name is mentioned, it's not a deal. Because Abraham was the father of faith. But to have Rahab's name there, a gentile, a prostitute, mentioned in the hall of faith. My, that is something else. That is something else. But why? Because this woman positioned herself. She positioned herself and touched a button that God cannot but respond to. Almsgiving. She just decided to be hospitable to the strangers, regardless of the consequences, you know, she was faced with. And as if she was speaking God's love language, Bible tells us in 1 John 3, 10, he said, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. It's as if to say that righteousness before God is equated to loving your brother. So righteousness before God is not the kind of righteousness that we see you. No, 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 no. Righteousness before God is our ability to love our brother. And then First John 3.17 again said that whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And then John 5.12 also tells that this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he continues in John 14 that if you love me, keep my commandment. So clearly, if you see all these scriptures that is detailing, that are detailing out God's love language, we can see that Rahab and Cornelius, they fitted it exactly. Hallelujah. But when we look at the story that we read this morning, and then we will end there. We read the story of this woman. Bible calls her, doesn't give her a name. It said, her name is not mentioned. Theologians say that this woman is Mary Magdalene. But the Bible records her without a name. And I believe that it's significant. When you give somebody a name, you identify the person with that name. So I identify the person with everything that the person is known for. So you know Ralph, and you know Ralph has to do with the music. When you, have, when you mention Ralph's name, anything to do with music, you know, he's there. So you tag a person by his or her name. So scripture is careful not to give this woman a name. 
Because to give her a name will be to attack her by whatever identity they know her to be. No, so she, scripture doesn't give this woman a name. It's an unnamed woman. So this woman, Christ had been invited to the house of Simon the Pharisee to eat there. And this woman came over there. When someone invited him, normally, if you invite an honorable person to come to your home, because of the agricultural society they lived in, their feet were very dirty. So it was expected that you would wash, or you let the servant of the house wash the feet of the guest. Simon came to the house, um, Jesus Christ came to the house of Simon at Simon's invitation. He came there, but Simon did not wash his feet. And then this woman from nowhere, this unnamed woman came, and she sat at Jesus' feet. And she kept weeping, and she kept weeping, and she kept weeping. And she wept, and her tears became like water, and they just tears cleaned her feet. A woman's hair is her glory. If you pour water in my hair right now, I'll be upset with you. Very upset with you. How much more if you pour a drink in my hair? But this woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears. And Bible says that she cleaned his feet with her hair. And, and I can't really imagine that. She cleaned her feet with her. When your hair is even dirty, the kind of dandruff and discomfort you feel. But she cleaned her feet, his feet with her hair. And Bible said that she poured fragrant oil on his feet. And so this man, Simon, who had invited Christ... <coughs> Knew this woman because they knew that she was a prostitute. Or they, yes, she was somebody with not, without a good reputation in the city. And so he saw, he said, ah, this man, Jesus Christ, if he really was a prophet, he would have known what kind of woman this woman is. I just sitting at his feet and doing all those jibbics at his feet. But Jesus being God, read his mind. And he said, Simon. And he narrated a parable to him. There are two people one owed a lot of money, the other owed small, and they were both forgiven. Who do you think would be most grateful? And said, oh, the one who owed plenty of money. He said, likewise, the same with this woman. I came to your house, but you did not give me water to wash my feet. This woman has washed my feet with her tears. You did not anoint my feet with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet, and he says it's with fragrant oil. And therefore, I tell you that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Continue. Continue. Quick, quick, quick. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Continue. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Christ makes two profound statements there. He says, Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And you look at this woman's acts. And you see, what faith did she show? What of faith do we see there that has earned her her salvation? And all that we see this woman doing is that it's similar to Rahab. By coming to the house of the Pharisee uninvited, she put her life on the line. First and foremost, these Pharisees, they were strict people. You couldn't mingle with them. Then you come to their home uninvited. And you sit at the feet of his guest. And everybody in the town knows you to be a prostitute. And you are weeping and you are cleaning somebody's feet with your hair. But this woman, by what she was doing, was making a statement. And I believe what she was saying is that, look, this is the man that I revere. I do not know, I don't, I don't mind if he steps on me. I don't, whatever it is, I know that in his presence, I can pour out my heart. I know that in his presence, I can be just what I am. He, can, he will accept me just the way I am. So this woman came before Jesus Christ 
And by her act of crying and weeping, she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. And Jesus Christ being God, seeing the heart of this woman, realized that this woman was worshipping him. This woman was not the kind of woman that the people um, um, just judged her to be on the outside. But inside this supposed prostitute was somebody who was yearning for God. Was somebody who was, who was saying that regardless, I mean, I cast my crowns before you. He was, she was using her hair, which is her glory, to clean his feet, her feet, feet, the worst part of his body. And this woman was making a clear statement that before you, oh God, I am nothing. I exalt you above every other thing in my life. And this to God was an act of faith. And so Christ said to her that your sins, your, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. But the most profound thing he says, which I want us to end with, he says that what? This woman's sins are forgiving her because she loved much. Is that because she loved much? Because she loved much. Her sins have been forgiven her because she loved much. Which means that oftentimes there's something that love can do to us. There's a secret in loving God. I want to read one chapter, the last part of my book, and then we'll conclude. And I, in that, I write that Mary, sorry, Rahab openly declared her stance for the God of Israel and risked her life like the unnamed woman. However, a bit step, a step further, Rahab demonstrated her love to God by being hospitable to the spies and by giving them every assistance she could within her capacity to enable them to accomplish their mission. In the Apostle James' words, she showed her faith by her works. And I conclude by saying, we need to have fervent love for one another as believers for that matter. Rahab's expression of her love for God through her hospitality to the sins, to the spies, sorry, caused her many sins to be written off. Likewise, the unnamed woman had her many sins written off because she loved much. By saying that her sins are forgiven. What was Christ implying? Was he uncovering an all-time secret for the believer? Yes. Jesus was saying that a demonstration of love for him is an act of faith, which assesses us supernaturally into a place of grace. He says that the demonstration of our love for him is an act of faith, which assesses us supernaturally into a, a place of grace. Can it be that the demonstration of the love that Rahab had for God was an act of faith that translated her supernaturally from where she was to become a recipient of the gospel and also a part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ and most importantly, reckoned in the hall of faith? Could it be that this same act of generosity this same act of showing loving God, which um, this unnamed woman did, is what catapulted her into a place of grace. And the Apostle Peter puts this explicitly in First Peter chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. It's a scripture I have known for a long time. But when God opened my eyes to understand it, I realized that this statement that Peter made is the same statement that Jesus Christ made to this woman. And Peter said, By the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. He said, Be serious and watchful in your prayers. What is prayer? Prayer is the time that we spend with God. Time Prayer is relating with God. Prayer is going before God, telling him your deepest needs, your deepest hurts, your fears, and then hearing him download his secrets to you. That is what prayer is. And Peter said that, therefore, be serious in your prayer, the first thing. And then he said, have fervent love one for another. Have fervent love. One for another. Fervent love is what we have had. Fervent love 
is what this unnamed woman have. Fervent love is what Cornelius have. Fervent love is ability to practice righteousness. It's not just saying we love God, no, but demonstrating our love to God by the way we relate, the, how, we, how we relate with one another. The manifestation of our love to God is seen in the way we demonstrate our love one to another. That is fervent love. And so Peter says that for love will cover a multitude of sins. It is the same thing that Christ said to the woman. Her sins are forgiven her because she loved much. Could it be that lots of people, sometimes there are certain people that they just, we don't understand why things seem to work out for them. Because when we look on the outside, they are very unrighteous. They are like prostitutes. They are like the heathen. They go against the commandments of God. But somehow things just seem to work out for them. Could it be that these people are touching the soft spot of God? Could it be that these people are having fervent love for one another? Could it be that the demonstration of their love is something that God can do nothing about but to meet them at the point of the need and usher them into an inexplicable error of grace. Could it be that he's bypassing the Pharisees, the scribes, the learned, the believers like you and I because our hearts are like stones because we do not feel for the needs of people. Could it be that the grace that God is making abundant to those people could have been ours if only we could respond to God's love language the way these people responded to the God's love language. This morning, I came to encourage you that this is one secret of um, that we need to catch as believers. This is what the unraveling the secret of fervent love. If we are able to love fervently, I believe that God will usher us supernaturally into an era of grace that you and I will be amazed with. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord help you to stand. Let that help you to be able to express the love he has put in you in the way that he wants us to express it so that we'll be ushered into an inexplicable measure of grace to his glory. God bless you. I open our feet.